Good news and bad news if you start having more success as a leader. The good news is that you can do more to help people and organizations. The bad news is you might find yourself getting some tougher assignments. When that new opportunity is about helping a team already in crisis, this episode will help you start. This is Coaching for Leaders, Episode 603. Produced by Innovate Learning. Maximizing Human Potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover leadership wisdom through insightful conversations. Leaders, of course, are always called upon to respond when a crisis happens. Crisis is something that we have certainly seen a lot of in the last few years. And crisis is something that is going to be inevitably part of leadership. How can we show up and be prepared in the best possible way? Today, I'm so glad to welcome a guest who not only has an expertise and has studied this issue for so many years, but also has lived it and led effectively through crisis. I'm so pleased to introduce to you Lynn Perry Wooten. She is a seasoned academic and an expert on organizational development and transformation. She became the ninth president of Simmons University on July 1st, 2020, and is the first African-American to lead the university. Lynn's research specializes in crisis leadership, diversity and inclusion, and positive leadership, organizational behavior that reveals and nurtures the highest level of human potential. She has also had a robust clinical practice, providing leadership development, education, and training for a wide variety of companies and institutions, from the Kellogg Foundation to Harvard University's Kennedy School and to Google. With leadership development at the core of her work, her research has ranged from an NIH-funded investigation of how leadership can positively alleviate health disparities to leading in crisis and managing workforce diversity. She is the co-author of Arrive and Thrive, Seven Impactful Practices for Women Navigating Leadership and co-editor of Positive Organizing in a Global Society, Understanding and Engaging Differences for Capacity Building and Inclusion. She is also now the author with Erica James of The Prepared Leader, Emerge from Any Crisis More Resilient Than Before. Lynn, what a pleasure to meet you and have you on the show. Thank you, Dave. It's an honor to be here. You, of course, as I mentioned in the bio, have studied crisis management for a good part of your career. And I mentioned the date you took over as president, July 1st, 2020. We all knew know where we were, right, in 2020. And here you were having studied this for so many years, developing an expertise on it, and then taking on such a significant role of president of such a significant organization in the midst of a crisis. And I know one of the practices that you invite leaders to do is to be self-aware. What was your own inner dialogue like with yourself in the summer of 2020? Yeah, Dave, Erica and I have been co-authors and friends and collaborators since our graduate school days. Mm. And we've been writing about crisis leadership almost right when we were young assistant professors and started talking about this book before. Right, a couple months before the pandemic hit. Interestingly, though, we also decided to make major career transitions. And we did not know a pandemic was coming when I took the presidency of Simmons University. Erica did not know a pandemic was coming when she took the Wharton Deanship. So this, for me, it was February the 6th on 2020 when I signed the papers to become president of Simmons University. I remember it because it's my husband's birthday. Fast forward to, I was back in Boston looking for housing. 
And on the day that the world started to shut down, my daughter and I were looking for housing. And that's when I was a dean at Cornell University. And I had to rush back to Cornell because we were closing down the campus. Hmm. And remember, I'm a seasoned academic. I came to college in 1984, never left. I had never closed down a campus in my life. So closing down a campus and being part of a dean's team and then being part of a presidency for a university. So what was I coaching to myself? What was the you know, the inner dialogue I was having in my mind is, wow, all of a sudden, Erica and I are going to have to practice what we have researched and wrote about. Uh, yeah. Asking myself, how do I show up to be the best leader I can be? How do I ensure the well-being of my constituents and stakeholders? How do I create a culture where we're focusing on safety, we're seeing the crisis as an opportunity? And we're moving forward after the crisis were all questions I was asking. Now, uh, let's be, get real here. Anytime a leader goes through a crisis, we have to be resilient. And, you know, we talk about that in Arrive and Thrive, and I talk about in this book. And the first step I had to do is give myself some grace. I, I was, um, the first couple of months of the pandemic before I moved to Boston, I was, I, I think I was hibernating in Ithaca and gave myself a lot of time the grace. And then ask myself, what was I going to have to learn to lead in this crisis moving forward for higher education? Mm. You know, the pandemic is such a fascinating example of crisis for so many of us. And of course, the word unprecedented has been used so many yes. times to describe the pandemic. And and yet I was really struck by a couple of lines in the book. Uh, I'm quoting Erica and you now. You write, crises are not one-off events. They happen time and time again. Just as one crisis starts to resolve, another is already taking shape. Unfortunately, human beings are not ideally equipped to rationalize threats like this. And I was thinking about that. And I think most of us don't think about crisis that way, right? We, we think, okay, I'm done. <laughs> but, the in, but the invitation here is that leaders should. What's the value of thinking that way? Yeah. It's a great question about what is the value and then how do I think this way? Because we get burnout. Leading in a crisis takes lots of energy. I, I see it on my own campuses. I see it when I talk to my fellow presidents about we're all so tired from the crisis in the pandemic era that we don't even have time to think about that next crisis around the corner. In the book, we talk about this bias about panic and neglect. We go in the panic mode. We try to resolve the crisis and we don't think about the next crisis. So thinking about my 30 plus years in higher education and all the crises I've seen, you know, I've seen swine flu and SARS on the health side. I've seen the, um, the dot bubble crisis. I've seen multiple recessions. I've seen multiple crises as it relates to diversity management and social reckoning. But every time we think that crisis is over, we want to take a break. And we don't have the memory muscle to invest in, okay, what is that next crisis around the corner as a leader? How do I prepare for that next crisis? And Dean James and I talk about that being a two-part process. One is that you have to say, okay, what, did I, what can I learn from the previous crisis to help me prepare? So after action reviews are so important. And it's not only learning from the previous crisis you led, but what have we learned from history? And what can I learn from diverse experts that really help us have that, what we call that muscle to be constantly seeing around the corner? The other big skill I think about as the leaders have to do is you have to do constant scenario planning and asking yourself what's happening. I'll give you one example in my industry now. 
many small colleges are saying we having a demographic cliff as less people are going to colleges. And mm-hmm. so I'm constantly planning for in a smaller world of students being interested in college, what does the university of the future look for? How do we make sure that we're all thriving? I think a lot of us think about crisis as always and only a bad thing. And uh, right. one of the other sections that I that really leapt out at me is uh, you write, for most of us, crises are predominantly threats. We're inclined to view them as danger to ourselves, our people, our organizations, our stakeholders. But crises are ambiguous. They're both threats and opportunities. Yet how you navigate a crisis and how you respond to its threats and its opportunities and your decision-making depends very much on the subjective frame you use. It really is incumbent upon leaders to see the entire picture, not just the threat, is it? It's, it's really, it can be an opportunity. It can definitely be an opportunity, and it's constantly looking to see where are there opportunities. And it's an opportunity on multiple levels, at the individual level, at the team level, the organizational level, Dave, and what we discuss as the mega community level. And I want to give the example of healthcare as just one example. Healthcare and higher ed, I often talk about. And I talk, well, I talk about the three H's healthcare, higher ed, and hospitality a lot. You know, if you would have asked doctors before the crisis, could they build efficient infrastructure and systems for telemed? Most physicians and nurses and healthcare providers would say, my patients are never going to use telemed. I'm not skilled to use telemed. The system is not skilled. But that crisis created that opportunity where healthcare organizations had to think about, how do I use technology to get to my patients? How do I become more efficient? So that's that's one example of opportunity. Another opportunity that we've seen come out of the most recent crisis is all of my career, I have studied work-life balance and what we do for work-life balance. Who would have ever thought now that many organizations know how to run remotely, they know how to run hybrid, and have flexible work environments? Well, the crisis created the sense of urgency for us to rethink work-life balance and gave us an opportunity. It's funny you mentioned that. I remember talking with a client who for two years prior to the pandemic was trying to get approval from the uh, board of his organization to have one of his employees work virtually one day a week. <laughs> I mean, it was it was such a small right. ask. And of course, overnight, the entire organization was virtual and it became just a non-issue. It is, it's, it is fascinating how quickly we can move when the environment changes around us. You know, as so much of the situations we sometimes find ourselves in as leaders is a crisis comes upon us, but it also happens that we inherit a, a team in a situation, as you did, walking into a crisis. And one of the things that you and Erica say that it in, in normal times, trust is key, but in a crisis situation, it's critical. And I think that I'll, my experience has been, I'm thinking about my own experience, but also the folks I've worked with, that often we react when a crisis is happening. Sometimes we do a good job of stopping and assessing. but trust and building trust is the kind of thing that I don't think a lot of leaders think like, well, I'm going to stop and I'm going to really work on building trust in the middle of a crisis. But you say that's so critical. It is so critical. And we use the metaphor many times, such as the situation that Erica and I had, you're walking into a crisis, you're a new leader, and it's like coming into the movies in the middle of the movie. 
Mm. And so what do you do when you come and inherit this team? And one of the CEOs we interviewed is Wanya Lucas. And Wanya is the CEO or president of Crown Media, um, the Hallmark Channel company many of your listeners may be familiar with. And we start the quote for chapter six saying, it's having the courage to say to a new team, you know what? Yes, I am new. And no, I don't have all the answers, but this is the journey. And it's one that we're going to share is what Wanya said to her team when she started in the middle of the pandemic, leading the Hallmark Channel and Crown Media family. And part of building crust is showing up with your authentic self. It's admitting like Wanya said, I got to be courageous. I don't have all the answers. I'm vulnerable, but we're going to do this in the team. And I am the newbie coming to the team. Thus, when you're the new leader of the team, you have to spend lots of time building trust. Now, Erica's previous work when she was at the Darden School of Business at University of Virginia, she developed the trust will. And the trust will is a tool that we have a permission from Darden to use in the book that talks about every leader needs to invest in the three C's. And they're not going to be surprising to your audience, but I want them to be intentional. The first is communication. Communicate, communicate, communicate. You have to be transparent on what you know. You have to be able to tell the story. Your communication has to go to multiple stakeholders. So in the case of me, I was communicating to people in the Boston community, the medical community, inside my organizations, parents, alums, students, faculty, staff, all of the other college presidents in the Boston area. So communication is so important. And it's become complex because you have to use multiple channels of communication to the build that trust. Social media, email. I was just telling someone my 20-year-old daughter was helping me create videos in my Ithaca house that I could communicate out. Mm. All of those are so important for building trust. Communication lets people know that the leader's there, they're present, and they care about the situation. The next C that we talk about is you need to demonstrate competencies and that you're competent. And to be competent, you know, it's crisis leadership is not a solo journey. You need multiple forms of competency at the table. Your CFO, your chief marketing officer, your chief administrative officer. Uh, many of us had to bring our chief medical officers in or public health experts because we were also having a social reckoning diversity crisis at the same time. My chief diversity officer needed to be at the table. So competencies and the multiple forms of it. And the final C that we talk about, the three C's that we often think leaders forget is the contract. What contract do you have? The implicit contract and the explicit contract between you and those stakeholders. The contract for the job they're going to do, the contract that you're going to say about how you're going to lead them out the crisis. And another one that became more salient is this individual contract about ensuring the well-being of individuals, teams, and organizations. So trust is a lot of work, but it has to be prioritized. Yeah. And these three are so critical. And the thing that I love about the book so much is it is a book of so many questions. Questions for us, and of course, uh, us as leaders being so coach-like and asking questions is so important. Yeah. And and you ask so many questions of us around these three Cs. And I, I'd love to dive in on a few of them. One of the questions that you ask of leaders is, 
communication on communication is is communication something you prioritize especially when you take over the leadership of a new team you mentioned so many the the, the importance of the variety in the medium what does that kind of communication look like when the leader's really prioritizing it well you know in a crisis situation the communication prioritizing is constant and consistent so it's not like you just communicate day one and then you don't communicate again till day 10 when you think you have a solution. So it's consistency in your communication. It has to be multiple channel modes because we know, for example, I deal with younger generations. Now, they don't read email anymore, Dave. So this is why I was on social media and creating videos, those type of things. So multiple communication modes. Your communication also has to demonstrate your competency. So this is what I'm doing. These are the expertise I'm bringing to the table. And I like to think communication in many instances is show me the data and tell me the story. You know, the Jerry Maguire Moody said, show me the money. Yeah. Pandemic era, we saw how important it was to see multiple forms of data. The data about what's the current situation. The data about what recovery is going to look like. And the story of the pathway between the current situation and recovery. So a lot of the times when I was meeting with my team, we spent just talking about how we're going to communicate. And there's another C that goes along with communication, cascading. Everyone who's in the room making it happen has to be agents of the crisis communication plan. And so I always ended my meetings with saying, okay, what's going to be the cascading message to our various audiences? And who's going to own the different components of those cascading messages to our important stakeholders? Mm, huge. And another key point that really resonated with me is the tendency that we all have as human beings to downplay risks. And the invitation yeah. that Eric and you make is tell it like it is, right? Especially yep. in those communications. Yep. You know, tell it like it is. In some ways, you know, start with the worst case scenario. You know, you hear, you hear some leavers say, I'm going to, you know, I'm not going to tell everything up front. Well, instead, you want to say, tell it like it is. The worst case scenario will look like this. This is a medium case, and this is the low risk scenario. And each of these scenarios, this is our pathway to action. But don't hide the risk. Be up front. Be transparent and say, I need your help when you need your help. And these are the pathway to actions. You mentioned competence a few moments ago, and one of the questions from the book it, it asking us as leaders is, are you confident that you and your team have the knowledge and the aptitude to get critical things done? And I was thinking about that question, and I was wondering, what if you're not sure? Or the answer is no. What do you do? Yeah, that goes back to those inner dialogues you first asked me about. And sometimes the answer is going to be no, and that's okay. So first, Dave, I say, take a deep breath. And then I say, the universe is big. Me, my team, we may not have the competence, the confidence or the knowledge, but someone out there does. And who do I need to partner with? And what expertise do I need to bring in? In the book, we talk about mega communities, especially for wide scale global crisis. And we would have never had a solution for the pandemic and a vaccine if people didn't partner the nonprofit sector, the government sector, and the corporate sector to make a vaccine. So no one organization in these big crises has all the answers. Give yourself the grace to look outside the organization to think, who can I partner with? Mm. I love that invitation. I mean, we're, 
I don't know about you, but my tendency is like to try to figure out something myself anytime a crisis happens. And I have to remind myself like, no, you actually know other people. <laughs> you can ask for help. Right. And yet there's something about crisis that like gets us with our blinders on that sometimes we forget that we can reach out and ask for help and form partnerships and rely on the partnerships we already have. Right. We, we're in a society and have a leadership culture, especially here in the States and Western societies where we need to be the sole hero. And that's not the case in a crisis situation. Crisis is not solo leadership. It's not even tennis doubles. And instead, <laughs> right? I, my son was a tennis player, so I go to that metaphor. But instead, you have to ask yourself, you know, I can't be the solo leader. I need people to help me. I need partners. Just bring all the brilliant people in your ecosystem. One of those other C's you highlighted was the word contract, which is also yeah. not a word I think normally people think about when they think about trust. But you ask leaders, is there a strong sense of contractual obligation or commitment between you and your team or teams? I'm wondering if you could paint the picture for what that looks like and how would you know if that's there? Yeah. You know, I want to repeat that question again so it can resonate with your audience. Is there a strong sense of contract or obligation? And you said between you and your team. And the next sentence we say in the book is, do you take care to follow through on what you pledge to do? And do you ensure your team members do the same? Mm. And so if I am the finance expert and my contract or obligation is really to show up, to ask the tough questions, to have the financial data prepared so we can make the decisions and have the pathway expert. That's the contract that you have in the organization. Each of us are brought to our organization's because of our expertise, our experience, and our execution capability. And we should be living up to those contracts. The other part of the contract as me as a leader is, is that I have to ensure well-being of my organization, my team, and my direct reports. And sometimes we forget that. So I was not only checking on the contractual obligation of the organization and the CFO or the chief marketing officer or my provost, who's my vice president, I was thinking about the contract we have also to ensure well-being and be stewards of our organization, which comes back to, you know, when we talk about the three Ps, the contract for prepared leader rests on the three Ps. As leaders, we have to ensure we're taking care of our people. We have to be stewards for the planet and whatever our profit motive is, even for nonprofits, we have some type of profit motive. One of the other distinctions in the book is the distinction between trust and swift trust. And yeah. you know, swift trust in a crisis key. What's different about swift trust? Yeah. You know, Dave, I just met you, so I need to build swift trust. Someone I've known, I've known Erica since, you know, 1991. So I don't that's a long-term relationship of trust. Yeah. Swift, yeah. Swift trust is saying, okay. I need people to believe in me. So it's based on the three C's. And I need to do things to demonstrate that I am trustworthy and I'm vulnerable and that I care. And I'll give one example of me building swift trust with parents during the crisis. I took off my president's hat and put on my parents' hat because I have two kids and one was in college during the pandemic also and said, you know, as a parent, these are the things I'm doing to ensure that your child will have a well-being during the pandemic at Simmons. Being able to have and step into a level of empathy with the empathy, other person. Empathy, compassion, you're right. Yeah, meeting them where they are 
so key to be able to do to 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 have that happen quickly. And you know, I I think it was interesting to the the point that you both make in your work that some things are more straightforward in a crisis. <laughs> uh, what is it that's more straightforward? When when the crisis is urgent, you know, we when we see climate change and the weather, and we and we know what this, we know how to track weather patterns. For example, we know where the weather may head and when it's going to hit because meteorologists have become really good. At it. That part about is straightforward. But the, the part that becomes more challenging is the post-crisis work. How do I rebuild the organization? How do I think about the learning? So many things are sailing, especially in sudden crisis, earthquakes, hurricanes, fires, those type of things. And smoldering crisis, what we talk about, a lot of times it's not easy to see because we become in neglect mode or we ignore it or we think it's not going to grow into a crisis. There's a big invitation from Eric and you when thinking about inheriting a team in a crisis to think about high-performance meetings and that yeah. meetings are so central to this. And one of the key points is that meetings should be really frequent. And what's the reason for meetings needing to be more frequent in the middle of crisis? Yeah. We, you need everybody in the room. Crisis, in my mind, are the ultimate call for collective learning. And the only way you can get collective learning, for the most part, is everybody has to be sitting around the room. Now, the leader has to be intentional of how he or she creates that collective learning. But in a crisis situation, as I said, it's not a solo journey. And collective learning is the metaphor that may, you're really making the sum greater than the parts. And what do meetings do? Uh, meetings help me exchange ideals I would have never thought about. So I'll learn a new ideal from someone on my team. They make sure that we're all on the same page about what we're going to communicate. And they create ways for us to be innovative and effective problem solvers. So at the height of the pandemic, I was meeting with my team three times a week. Mm. And very structured agendas where we had focus areas, we had time for organizational learning, we had time for discussion, dialogue, debate, and we always ended with cascading actions and communications. It's hard to do that, Dave, over email yeah. or working at your desk alone, but being in the room and making things happen. It also really did build a sense of connections, which are so important for the team in a crisis. Yeah. And I was thinking about the example either you or Erica wrote about in the book that I believe she at Wharton had would have very large meetings in some cases, 35, 40 yeah. people together. Yeah. And, and it was interesting, the expectation that she set for folks in, in that meeting. I'm wondering if you could share that. Yeah. You know, we both had very large meetings and, you know, and, and, and even now out here, I get feedback, oh, Lynn, you, your meetings are too big. But Erica and I both have this notion that part of prepared leaders is being collective and collaborative. And so you have to be good at how you manage the meetings. And sometimes you need smaller meetings, but other times you don't. And Erica's really good about boundaries and setting expectations. And there was a time, and you're gonna, most campus crisis, where she had to say, you know what? All of the experts are in the room to help us get through this crisis. I have to take a step back now and think about the future and our strategic priorities. So I'm going to leave the experts in the room for managing and leading this crisis, and I'm going to do parallel planning of our strategy and our future. And that's, that's something bold, because as a leader, we want to hold on to micromanaging for the crisis. 
Yeah, indeed. And I, I think one of the things that really resonated with me, too, of the point that, yes, you're handling the situation at hand, the immediacy of helping the organization, but you're also building resilience for the long term, that how you exactly. handle that is, is, it sets the stage for, back to our earlier point, the next crisis, right? It sets the stage for not only the next crisis, but the strategic pathway. Um, Dave, you know, I spent about more than two decades of my career in Michigan, so I follow the auto industry a lot. And I look at Mary Barr, and I speculate that she had to be doing both. She had to turn over her crisis leadership team and say, at the moment, this is what General Motors is going to do. We're going to shut down our plants. We're going to help the government by making PPE. But at the same time, Mary Barr and someone had to be in the back room thinking about, okay, what's the future of electric cars? And how are we going to waive the next crisis and have a competitive advantage as the automotive industry transitions? Mm, Indeed. I I just... I love the book because it looks at crisis from every aspect, the stages of crisis, the skills you need as a leader. Most of them we haven't even hit on in this conversation, but it, it's such a powerful book because it is so built around questions and us yeah. asking ourselves the right questions, asking the questions of our team. So thank you so much for bringing this work into the world. And we're going to be pointing folks to the website with all the resources, the tools. So we'll make sure folks can get that. It's in the weekly leadership guide coming this week for those of you who receive that. And speaking of questions, one final question for you, Lynn. You know, leaders are, of course, learning and growing. As you mentioned, you know, the learning process you went through. Um, I'm curious, you know, now reflecting on the last couple of years of you taking over as president and entering in a crisis, what's one thing that you've changed your mind on? about how you lead or handle a crisis? That's a good question. And Dave, I love how you emphasize um, questions because the questions we ask provide the roadmap for our story and strategy, the past, the present, and the future. Mm. So I spent a lot of my career discussing strategic human resource management, teaching it in exec ed at multiple levels. And it amazes me how most leaders, including myself, we were not prepared for the smoldering crisis of the big quit the quiet resonation, what we're seeing. Yet, this is a crisis that's been in the making since I've been in the workforce. And we just didn't do anything about it. And this has really changed about how leaders need to plan smoldering crisis. And let me tell you why I say this is a crisis that we've known about. You know, if you some people speculate, if you look at one-fourth of the exodus of the workforce, it's women who were burned out. Women who just said, I, I've had it with the she session. I can't balance work and life and my caring responsibilities. So it's a or society, we, we haven't prepared to be a woman's friendly workforce. The other thing about this HR smoldering crisis that we didn't prepare for is I'm a generation Xer. We've known for years that Generation X is the smallest generation that America's ever had. And when the baby boomers, if they ever retire, we're not going to have enough workers. But we didn't prepare for that. So the workforce crisis and how we think strategically about it and reimagining work is something I um, a question I've been asking myself and want to spend more time on. Have you come to any initial answers or next steps yet? Some of the answers I've said to myself is I kind of hinted at we need to be a more friendly workplace for people who are trying to balance life, work and life, women friendly and caring responsibilities. We need to realize that there are not enough Generation Xers to go around. And so we're going to have to start hiring younger people and getting better at secession planning. And then we need to build effective hybrid workplaces 
for all industries so that people want to work. Lynn Perry Wooten is co-author with Erica James of The Prepared Leader, Emerge from Any Crisis More Resilient Than Before. Lynn, thank you so much for your work. Dave, thank you for having me and all the good work you do for leadership development. If this conversation with Lynn is helpful to you, several related episodes I would recommend. One of them is episode 55, How to Lead in Crisis. Carol Taylor was my guest on that episode, also the president of a university, also who inherited the presidency in the midst of a crisis, although a financial one in her case. And we talked in that episode about that journey for her, what she did, what she didn't do, and all of the difficulties that came along with it. In fact, almost a unrecoverable situation, although they did ultimately prevail and work through the crisis. We talked in episode 55 about all of the tactics, of course, but also all the emotion that comes with that with a leader who's navigating such a difficult situation. I'd also recommend episode 456, How to Be Diplomatic. Susan Rice was my guest on that episode, past National Security Advisor and United Nations Ambassador. Of course, diplomacy is so important in a crisis situation of being able to navigate lots of emotions and difficult situations. Of course, Susan Rice, an expert in that at every level. Episode 456, her story and her journey on how to to get better at that. I'd also recommend episode 529, The Way Out of Major Conflict. Amanda Ripley was my guest on that episode. We talked about her fascinating book on high conflict and how we can all fall into conflict. And when you're inheriting a crisis, it is very easy to get sucked into conflict and what she calls high conflict. In episode 529, we talk about what are some ways to begin to find your way out of that if you're dealing with a lot of conflict right now in any capacity. That's a good episode to start with. And then finally, I'm thinking about episode 584, the starting point for inclusive leadership. Susan McEntee Brady was my guest on that episode. We talked about diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I'm thinking about her because Lynn is a co-author on their book as well. So many other resources there that'll be helpful to you that feature Lynn's work. All of those episodes, of course, you can find on the coachingforleaders.com website. If you haven't set up your free membership, you're missing out on so many resources inside of the website that you can access for free, go over to coachingforleaders.com. You can set up your free membership right now. One of the many resources is my free library. Now, there's an episode library. We have all the episodes categorized by topics, but there's also a link for something called Dave's library inside there. And when you click there, you're going to come up to a list of a whole bunch of hashtags because I have databased in that library all of the external resources I find, other podcasts, articles, videos, you name it over the years. If I have found something that's useful to me, I have databased it and made it accessible for you as well. And I just pulled up the hashtag that says crisis. And I found seven resources that I've databased there. One of them is a past episode from the HBR Women at Work podcast, a fabulous overview on how to handle some crisis situations. There's several Harvard Business Review articles in there that I've recommended, a Fast Company article, a resource from the Center for Creative Leadership, and also an article from the Los Angeles Times. I am doing this every single day. I'm databasing articles I'm finding and resources and making that available to you as part of free membership. Again, just click on Dave's library when you go inside the free membership. And if you don't have the free membership set up yet, 
coachingforleaders.com is the place to go. And you can find it right on the homepage there. Set up your free membership and you'll have access to my library, plus all of the other benefits inside a free membership. Next week, I'm glad to welcome Gustavo Rossetti to the podcast. He is going to be walking us through how you can build belonging on remote teams, a critical topic for so many of us. Join me for that conversation with Gustavo next time, and I'll see you back on Monday.